0: You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today we have a special guest, Pastor Rich Lusk, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Rich is an author, pastor and he's spoken at several conferences about the topic of gendered piety, and in particular, about masculinity. So thanks for listening, and sit back and enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today we have a very special guest. We have Pastor Rich Lusk. Rich, thanks for joining us today on the show.
1: Yeah, great to be with you,
0: So, Rich, I want to start off uh, really a conversation that we had on Facebook uh, regarding the overall state of sexuality in the church and the culture. And one of, kind of the, the words that you used was gendered piety. And one of the questions I had asked you there, I just want to ask you here now as well, And that is, what is it that you see about the state of sexuality in the church? It seems like a lot of people are afraid to talk about masculinity and femininity, especially what's going on with political correctness, critical race theory, all these things. So kind of overall, what do you see happening in church and culture on that front?
1: It's a good, easy question to get us started off here. You really know how to throw the (laughs) balls out (laughs) here. Yeah, we live in a land of confusion. Uh, We live in a time when people are rebelling against the way God made the world, and we are seeing the fruits of that rebellion all around us in uh, either the failure of families to form or family disintegration. Uh, We see it in the fatherlessness crisis, which I think really stands behind a lot of those other crises that you mentioned. We see it in all of the wreckage that has come from the sexual revolution. Uh, and and instead of repenting of the sexual revolution, the culture continues to double and triple down on the sexual revolution, thinking, well, if we just have, have a little more revolution, uh, we'll finally get the results, the happiness that we want. And I think that we have to be honest and look at the culture around us and say, you know what, uh, people are miserable. This is not working. Uh, rebelling against God, against God's word, against God's created order is an unmitigated disaster. And so you know, I, why don't we try something different? And I think that that's, I think this is where the church's message about men and women can have real appeal, because I think it's going to resonate with people. Right. Uh, I've seen this in my own ministry. A lot of people that that they just had no 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 clue. They had not been taught. And so what do you do with those people who are not taught? A lot of times when they hear this teaching, they realize how much it resonates with them to hear about the differences. Between men and women, and like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've seen people radically transform their lives and and become much much happier uh, as a result. Not that happiness is the end goal, but obviously, when you are living in tune with the way God made you, things are going to generally go much better for you. So you know, I think one of the one of the biggest and most fundamental things that we face is the fact that we live in a culture that is simply denying the differences between men and women. And yeah. it's not that men and women don't have a lot in common. We do, you know, we are made in God's image. We are equal in, in, in bearing God's image. We are equally fallen. And we are co-heirs together in Christ Jesus. So, you know, we can talk about all of those things, but th- those are not the truths that are really under attack. What's under attack right now, and therefore what we have to emphasize are the differences between men and women. And again, I mean, we can talk about the things that men and women have in common. I mean, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of a a woman is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we have that in common. Both men and women are aiming for Christ-likeness. We share that. But there are going to be really significant differences in the way that works itself out. Um, Sanctification cannot be androgynous because we are not androgynous creatures. We are male or female all the way down. Every cell of your body uh, you know your, your, your very soul uh, is either masculine or feminine, and, and that is going to uh, dictate or ought to dictate the way that your faith comes to expression in your life. So uh, masculine piety is going to be different from feminine piety because men have a different nature. Uh, than women do we have different callings, different roles to play uh we have different proclivities god has has gifted us and equipped us in different ways, and that's going to come to expression so anything that tries to make the human race androgynous is is going against the way God made the world it's going to result in disaster and so when you have people in the church who talk about how well there's not you know there's no such thing as biblical manhood or womanhood right. uh there's just you know, there's just there's just peoplehood, and we're all aiming at the same goal, which is to be made like Christ. There's something fundamentally unnatural and anti-creational, and I would say anti-biblical about that. I, I don't think uh, I don't think we do ourselves any favors by denying those things. And, and and the reality is, the differences between men and women, you know, you got a lot of controversy today. Are those differences just a matter of cultural conditioning? Uh, are the differences between men and women social constructs? the reality is these differences between men and women persist across the generations and across cultures. Uh, There has never been in the history of the world, a successful androgynous culture, a culture that smudged Mm -hmm. the differences between men and women. If if you uh, look across the history of the human race. uh, So, so across the generations. And if you look across the, 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 cultures, different ethnic groups, different cultures, you will always find a fundamental division of labor Uh, in the human race between men and women and to seek to eradicate that fundamental division of labor uh, again, it's a disaster. And that's because this division of labor goes back to the way God made us. It's it's all right there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I will sometimes say that what we call the culture wars are really the Genesis wars, because that's what we're really fighting about is, is what is in those first few chapters of Genesis. But I, I think these differences are so persistent that even in a culture like ours that has tried to eradicate these differences, they remain. If if I were to say to any group out there today, um, do you know what the difference is between men's magazines and women's magazines? Everybody knows right away what I'm talking about. You know, men's right. magazines are about things, you know, cars or guns or sports, and and women's magazines are going to be about relationships. Uh, and and beauty, you know. So so there's just a difference there. Men oriented towards dominion, women oriented towards glo- towards glory. Uh, men oriented towards strength, women oriented towards beauty. So you know, there's just those differences. I, I could do the same thing with movies. You know, if a bunch of guys are going to go out and watch a movie together, what are they going to watch? It's going to be something where a lot of stuff gets blown up, and there's some mission, right? Because that's what we're about. We're about the mission, and 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 that's how we bond is by joining in the mission together. And if a bunch of 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 ladies go out to see a movie together, you know it's gonna be some kind of rom com. uh, That's gonna be, you know, it's gonna end with a wedding. It's gonna be all about the relationship. (laughs) Now, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it's both. You know, the 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 Bible is both a war story, a mission story, uh, and it's a romantic comedy. You know, it ends with a a triumphant battle uh, where Christ is victorious. But of course, it also ends with a wedding. So it's it's both and. But those gender differences are there and they persist. In fact, this is really another way to get at it. And I think yeah. why it's such a problem in the church. You cannot tell the gospel story without getting, you know, people have, have said through the years, you know, you can't really tell the story of the gospel without getting into the Trinity. And that's right, because you have to think about, you know, the father sending the son and that kind of thing. But you also can't tell the story of the gospel without getting into gender issues, sex issues, because it's all about Christ, the husband, coming to rescue his bride, the damsel in distress, and bring her into his home. So, uh, you know, you you just when you start to move away from these things, if you let the culture influence you in these ways towards androgyny, you're just going to lose so much.
0: Yeah, I think that's huge. You bring up a really good point, especially on Genesis. This is something that, until you mentioned it uh, the other day, it's something that I would sort of miss the connection on. But just talk about for a minute the importance of what's taught in Genesis, and connecting that then with these these passages in the New Testament. Paul's talking to the churches, um, and they're about these sexual issues. These are the unpopular passages, but they really depend on Genesis. So why is getting our view? Of creation, Genesis 1 through 3. Why is that so important?
1: Well, just as a generalization, I would say that churches' uh, traditions that depart from the historic reading of Genesis 1 through 3. And by historic reading, I mean the church's traditional reading, but I mean also, especially, taking those chapters as history, that God made the world in the space of six days, as the Westminster Divines taught, and uh, that, that all the details there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are not myth. They are actual history now. Of course, like everything else in the Bible, all the rest of the history in the Bible is loaded with symbolic meaning and so forth. There's no dichotomy there between uh, the historical and the symbolic. But you have to insist on the historical sense that God really made the world and He made the world in this way. Uh, You, if you uh, replace that creation account with some kind of evolutionary story, say you know some kind of neo-Darwinian story, uh, then really, when it comes to these issues, all is lost. One question I would have is, okay, well, so then when does the Bible start to give us history? You know, Genesis right. 1 through 3 are in history. What about Genesis 4? You know, what about, I mean, at what point, how do you know it's history and what's not? Right. Uh, so there, there's that whole issue. But what I find interesting, and this is really what gets to your question, is that when the New Testament deals with marital issues and sexual issues, uh, when it deals with, say, the role of men and women in the church, when it deals with the definition of marriage, uh, in every single case, time after time, Jesus, or we especially see this with Paul because he deals with these things the most, they go back to the creation account, or you could say really they go back to Genesis 1 through 3, the, the account of the creation and the fall, and they build their argument off of the historical details there. So, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about marriage. You know, I I, I hate it when people say, oh, Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexuality. Well, he he did. He, He said everything that needs to be said in Mark chapter 10 when the Pharisees came and asked him about divorce. And he says, from the beginning, it was not so. And he goes back and he treats Adam and Eve as a paradigm. In fact, he says that God made man, male and female, for this reason that they might be joined together gender. I mean, I, I hate to use that word, but our English word sex, of course, is confusing sometimes. But God made us as a gendered species. God made us male and female for the sake of marriage. I mean, right. the male-female duality is built into the very definition of marriage from the beginning. And Jesus is affirming that they're in the strongest possible terms. It would just be impossible to say anything stronger about the fact that marriage is a Male female pairing, a male female covenant bonding. So you've got that there. He goes back to the details of the creation account. Paul in First Timothy chapter two. I mean, this is really a key one because this is the key passage when it comes to debates over uh, women in ministry. Can a woman be ordained as a pastor? Can women be elders in the church? And and Paul there says, "I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over man." So that's his rule for all the churches. That's an inspired, God given rule. If you reject that rule, if you say that's just Paul's rule. You're actually rejecting God's rule. You're rejecting the very word of God. But what's interesting then is the reason that he goes on to give. And he says it's because Adam was formed first, then Eve. So that's obviously in Genesis chapter 2. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. That's Genesis chapter three. Now right. this is what's interesting. If you if you go back and you think about that situation in Genesis two, that God sets up with the man and the woman. God creates the man first. You know, and we always say you know it's 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 mission before marriage. God gives Adam a job before He gives him a wife. So there's right. that. You know, that, that's foundational to a man's life. Uh, but he so but he also gives to the man the command, or really it's a prohibition, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I think that Eden, the Garden of Eden, is a sanctuary just as we have the tabernacle later on, which has got all kinds of Edenic imagery in it. That's a recapitulation of of Eden. Uh, The the temple is the same kind of way, and even today when we gather in our churches, we can say this is a reconstituted Garden of Eden, as it were, a glorified Garden of Eden when we gather for worship. That is the sanctuary. And those two trees at the center of the garden are the sacramental trees. That's the sacramental food. And they do have access to the tree of life, I think they will ultimately be granted access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that has to do with their promotion, their, their glorification, their exaltation into a higher form of kingship. Uh, and I would, there's a lot of reasons for that that I won't go into here. But basically, knowing good and evil or discerning good and evil, that's the kind of thing that Solomon asks for when he becomes king, that, that right. God would give him the ability to discern good and evil. It has to do with kingly rule. So they're not ready for that yet. Okay, So it's kind of like telling a, you know, a, a 13-year-old, uh, you, you can't drive. You can't have the car keys. Right. Now, you will eventually, if you prove yourself faithful, you'll eventually get to drive the, the family car. But not yet. You're not, you're not ready for that yet. God gives that instruction to Adam. So if Eve is going to learn about that prohibition, where is she going to learn it from? She is going to have to learn it from him. She's created to be his helper in all of life. That obviously applies to marriage, to society at large, but we can say in the Garden of Eden, she is created to be his liturgical helper. Adam is the first pastor. She is the first congregation. And so as pastor, he's to teach her the word of God, which in this case especially means teaching her the prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we're not to eat of that, at least not yet. And it means that when they go to the tree of life and they enjoy this this sacramental food, they do have access to, he is to be the one who presides over that meal and gives her the the sacramental food. What you have in Genesis chapter 3 is a complete reversal of that where you know people point out that this is this is a reversal of the whole created order where now instead of the man ruling his wife and then the man and the wife together ruling the lower creation you have the serpent who is this satanically inspired false teacher who comes into the garden and we can talk about what Adam should have done. Adam obviously should have put himself between the serpent and the woman. He should have crushed the serpent's head, even if that meant death for him. God would have resurrected him if it did, but he should have put himself between the serpent and the woman, and he should have crushed the serpent's head as soon as the serpent started questioning God's word. But instead, he stands off to the side, and Genesis 3 is really clear about this, that that he is with her this whole time, and he's watching as this happens, as uh, she receives False teaching from the serpent, okay, he's supposed to be her teacher and teach her the truth. Now he's allowing her to be taught falsely by the serpent, and he stands mm. by he abdicates, okay he's passive, he is effeminate this this is one reason why it's so important to see effeminacy as a sin in one sense, you can say effeminacy is the original sin from one perspective. Hmm. Uh, Adam became a pacifist when he should have gone to war, yeah, uh, he was effeminate when he should have been manly, yeah, he stands by and watches, and she Here's this false teaching, and then she takes that sacramental food that is prohibited. She partakes of it herself, and then she gives to him. Mm. Okay, what happens in those churches that have female pastors? That whole scene in Genesis 3 is being reenacted. You have women learning from the serpent rather than from a true Adam figure, a true pastor. And then when they preside at the Lord's table, they are recapitulating the fall handing the sacramental food to a man instead of receiving it from a man, and the entire created order, the entire liturgical order, is stood on its head. Now, if you don't believe that Genesis 2 is real history, if you don't believe that Genesis 3 is real history, Paul's argument's not going to carry any weight with you, and you're going to easily dismiss it, and you're going to say things like, well, there was this situation in Ephesus, blah blah blah, you know, that's what N.T. Wright does. Or you, you're going to uh, say, well, uh, th- these are, you know, Paul was, sa- Paul was saying this because of cultural reasons. He didn't want to be culturally offensive, so uh, he wants a male-only pastor. Well, the reality is, I mean, we, you know, we don't know a whole lot about first century Ephesus, but we do know that uh, the, uh, the pagan temple there was completely staffed by priestesses. Nothing was more common in paganism than female priests. Right. So it's actually the exact opposite. If Paul wanted to accommodate the culture, he would have said, yes, I permit a woman to teach and have authority. That's how they do it in all the pagan temples. Let's do it that way in the church, too. Yeah, but that's the very thing he forbids. Uh, So he's not he's not ceding any ground. In fact, I think that's probably why he has to say this is precisely because you got all these women who have been converted who are used to going to religious services where women are the dominant presiding figures. And he's basically saying, it's not going to be this way in the church. There have never been any priestesses among the people of God, and we're not going to start that now. So I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And and what a point, like you said, that that's being reenacted every time uh, we have females in the pulpit. And and I want to ask you, because this is something I've seen. uh, I came out of the SBC. And it was kind of shocking the number of otherwise robust, biblical reformed guys who were standing on, you know, the shoulders of John Owen and the Puritans. I'm just wondering what happened historically. How do we cede ground from the pulpit till we get to the point where guys are saying, you know, Beth Moore's okay. It's not such a big deal. Uh, If if there's not a place for Beth Moore in the SBC, there's not a place for a lot of us. These aren't just people on the side these are people at the top i think a lot of us were kind of shocked by that so my question for you is well, what do you think's going on in the pulpits that it's not just congregants being misled it, it's coming from the men who are leading that they are uncomfortable with these doctrines and and there has been a
1: definite shift which, uh, you know, I've been in pastoral ministry now for about 25 years, and I've definitely seen this shift take place, and the trajectory is very concerning. And I think that's one reason why you're saying, you know, those of us who are, uh, you know, who want to emphasize things like gendered piety, I think that's, you know, that's why we're talking about this so much now, because uh, it's just becoming more and more of an issue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, think about somebody like Russell Moore, you know, who, who just looks like a complete Weenie now, but you know, I mean, in the, in the early 2000s, he was writing in defense of of a kind of patriarchy. Yeah, uh, you know, I remember, in, in in he's got an article where he talks about, uh, you know, basically he says that all. I mean, he asked the very question you're asking because he raises this question. Uh, you know, you got all these churches that say they believe in traditional male female roles and traditional male female differences. They say they're they're biblical. They describe themselves as complementarian, so men and women complement one another. You know, they're different in that kind of way, but then he says, is this, is this really what's happening? And he tells the story of a woman who she says she's going to send her husband off to promise keepers for the summer, you know, hoping he'll kind of fix them. And it sounds like she's sending a little boy off to summer camp, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and, and this is, this is a man and a woman who would no doubt affirm that they believe in those traditional gender roles. And yet it's clearly not playing itself out. So I think there are a lot of things that have happened. I mean, the attack on masculinity has been going on a long, long time. Uh, And I think that, that it has worn men down to where men really are embarrassed and ashamed of their masculinity. Uh, The whole myth of patriarchal oppression that men have just, you know, have only and always oppressed women for the whole history of the world. Uh, That's such a false narrative, but it's got so much, so much pull right now. I was actually preaching from Ruth chapter two yesterday, and I pointed this out to my congregation uh, because I think it's important in light of recent events, uh, that in Ruth chapter two, Boaz, at the very beginning of the chapter, is presented as, some translations say a wealthy man, some say a mighty man. I would translate it as a hero of a man. Wow. And, and the term that's used there, uh, Gabor, uh, describes all at once his social status, that he is a man of great means. And that becomes obvious as the story progresses. It describes his courage and his competency. He's probably performed great military exploits on the battlefield. And it also describes his character, that he's a man of great character and integrity, which, of course, that also plays itself out in the story. But what's interesting is that when he notices this woman, Ruth, who is out gleaning in his field, how does he treat her? This is a man who clearly embodies the Torah. Okay, so what what, what Boaz does is what Torah does. If Torah is put into effect, it's going to look like Boaz. And how does he treat her? Well, he treats her as a man ought to treat a woman. And and yes, there are, you know, obviously the whole thing plays off of, you know, just as I said, you can't tell the gospel story without getting into male and female and what those mean. I mean, the story of Ruth is really all about this. You got a a hero and a heroine, and they're both incredible characters in their own way, but they play very different roles because one's a man and one's a woman. But what's interesting in Ruth chapter two is Boaz is presented as this model man and he's going to embody Torah, which for example, says that the gleanings should be left for immigrants and widows. And that's exactly what he does. You know, when he finds out who Ruth is, he goes out of his way to take special care of her. Everything he does is aimed at protecting her and providing her. He gives her Mm. water that his men have drawn. Uh, He invites her to share a meal with him at the end of the day, a a meal of bread and wine, uh, which, you know, what a shock that is. Okay. Um, So in all these ways, there's just not a trace of misogyny in the story. Right. So here you've got Boaz, who is the model patriarch. Everything he does Honors the woman as a woman, not in some kind of androgynous way, but honors her as the weaker vessel. He protects her, he provides for her, he takes care of her. He could have taken advantage of her. He's not that kind of man. He's a Torah man. He's a godly man. He's a hero of a man, and so he treats her in this really compassionate way that uh, that, that that values her. So, you know, there's no doubt that there have been many cultures throughout the history of the world that uh, have been oppressive to women because in paganism or Islam, that's what you get. Those are evil patriarchies. But in a patriarchy that is shaped by the word of God and a patriarchy that is shaped by the law of God, you have men who know how to treat women, uh, who know how to care for women, who know how to protect and provide. So, you know, when we talk about patriarchy, we're talking about creating men like Boaz. I mean, that, that's what we want. He, he is set forward as the model man. He's royalty even before there's royalty in Israel because he's the great grandfather of David. Uh, that's what a man ought to look like. So, uh, you know, what, what's happened in our culture? I think men have been attacked. Uh, and I think this is carried over to the church. And so now you've got uh, men who uh, who are ashamed of their masculinity. They don't know how to be men. They don't know how to express their masculinity in a way that won't be considered toxic. Uh, and so they become more and more effeminate, more and more feminized. But it's not just the men who are the losers in this, because, you know, I, I, I'm very suspicious of any view that says, for example, um, it's harder to be a man than be a woman. Or yeah. that we have a boy crisis, but then, you know, if we've got a boy crisis, I guarantee you we have a girl crisis, too. Yeah. Um, if, if if feminism gets manhood wrong, it yeah. also gets womanhood wrong. Um, men and women stand or fall together. You can't have one gender doing really well while another does not. Right. In fact, I think that's one of the real problems with feminism. I think it's important to understand historically, feminism is the first form of identity politics in American history. Huh. where you have a particular subgroup that separates itself out as having unique and distinctive political interests, where they become like, a, say, a voting block or something like that. So now women are going to vote in a certain way. I've had, this has been a dinner table conversation I've brought up, especially since I've, I've got daughters, and I've, I've asked the question, is there any law that they could pass in Washington, D.C. that would be good for me and bad for your mom, or vice versa? And there's not. I mean, because because my wife and I are one. I mean, anything that's good for me is good for her. Anything that's good for her is good for me. Anything that's bad for me is bad for her. If it's bad for her, it's bad for me. I mean, you know, we're one. Feminism separates women out from the household. It says, okay, now let's talk about what's good for you as women. And so what if it comes at the expense of men? But if it comes at the expense of men, it's ultimately bad for women as well. Uh, so I think that's really, really important to understand where feminism came from. Uh, and, but I think it's been incredibly influential in our culture, and I think it has worked its way even into the conservative church. And I think that when uh, complementarianism arose uh, as as a as a way of thinking about sexual issues, uh, there's a lot about the, the the early complementarians. I really appreciate. I mean, I think they were they were giving. You know, giving it a shot to reply or respond to what was happening in the culture with things like you know the Equal Rights Amendment and 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 this push towards feminism, but at the same time, it it accommodated itself to feminism far too much, and especially on the what, what we might call the thin end of complementarianism, where basically what happens is you have you have separated role from nature. And so instead of roles being rooted in our nature, so our distinctive roles as men and women being rooted in our distinctive natures as men and women, we're sort of androgynous underneath. There there, there aren't really these deep, deep differences between men and women, but God arbitrarily sign for the man to be the head in marriage and in the church. And then in the rest of life, we can function in this more or less androgynous kind of way. And I think that was an accommodation that uh, has proved to be a disaster for the church. Uh, but I, So I think what's happened now is, is we have uh, a situation where men have been constantly attacked and women have been constantly pedestalized. And it's bad for men and women both. So men don't know how to express their manhood uh men are ashamed of their masculinity any expression of masculinity is considered toxic and then you've got women who have developed this real sense of entitlement and and pastors know that, and so they're scared to death to address the sins of women, and so the sins of women go unaddressed. It's it's the classic you know Mother's Day versus Father's Day thing that all the Red Pill guys talk about, where Father's Day is all about berating the fathers, do better, man up, you know, be a better man. You're terrible, okay? And then on on uh, you know Mother's Day, you give all the women a flower and tell them how great they're doing. Well, the reality is they're good and yeah. bad fathers and they're good and bad moms. But yeah. we're not allowed to talk about the bad mom. We're not allowed to talk about. T- Toxic femininity. You know, my own pastoral experience, one thing that I found is that the the biggest troublemakers in the church are not alpha males. I mean, that's what people tend to think, oh, this toxic masculinity of the alpha male. That's not the biggest problem in the church. The biggest problem tends to be women who are married to beta males who are therefore insecure about their husband's own leadership, and then project that insecurity onto the church as a whole. They're insecure about their husband's leadership, and so they're insecure about male leadership in general, and so they can't trust the session because they can't trust their own husband. And and, and that becomes a real issue. So I I think we've ended up in this situation where both men and women have lost sense of what, what they're called to do, what they're called to be, what masculinity is, what femininity is.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely huge. And I I think especially something you brought up earlier, talking about Boaz, uh, of course, sometimes it's easy to forget, like the patriarchs, they're patriarchs. Uh, One of the things that irritated me, I guess, over the, I don't know, past decade, decade and a half, but maybe even dating back to the beginnings of complementarianism, was the willingness to give up the word patriarchy, uh, to defend it from a biblical standpoint, as you've done. I just want to ask you on the, on the front of words, so much of this does come down to language and language really is important. So I'm curious your thoughts. Is it a wise thing for the church to say, yeah, we need to give up the word patriarchy. Let's find a different word that is more appeasing.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, I was not happy with the word patriarchy because I thought it was associated with a lot of things that were problematic. Yeah, and and what I have in mind is what I would really now call a kind of hyper patriarchy. There were yes. people in the circles I was in that were uh, emphasizing a father's headship, a husband's headship over his wife, or the you know the, the the father's headship over his household in a way that I thought was really unhealthy and went far beyond the scriptures. I mean, just just to give you one example, of this kind of thing. I mean, I encounter people who, in the name of patriarchy, you know, were saying that a a A man who is the patriarch of his family has basically the right to tell his grown and married son where to work, where to go to church, and so forth. And yeah. what I saw coming out of those circles is that a you know a son who grows up in that context, he's got two choices: either he can remain effeminate himself; he never gets to be his own patriarch; he doesn't get to leave and cleave and really form his own household, yeah. or he can rebel. And those are his only two choices. So that kind of patriarchy, I really pushed back against about you know fifteen twenty years ago because I saw it as as really problematic. But it was it was it was. I won't say it was real common, but it was present in certain circles that I was, you know, either in or connected with to some degree. And I thought it was a real problem. I did not think it allowed the next generation to flourish. I don't think it allowed for the leaving and cleaving that Genesis 2 talked about. I thought it was kind of a suffocating, smothering, uh, controlling patriarchy that did not befit men of, of real confidence and faith. Um, so, so, you know, the There was that kind of thing that that uh, you know I, i look back at some of the things that i wrote around that time and i i did talk about um i think i generally qualified myself because i've never been totally opposed to the terminology of patriarchy but that was the terminology that was being used to describe a view that i would have that I thought just went too far that went off the rails. Uh, there's always a ditch on on both sides, yeah. you know, so we yeah. can go into the effeminacy ditch and that's a problem, you know, or we can go into this sort of hyper patriarchy. I mean, there is such a thing as toxic masculinity. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind. But uh, I would say that the term patriarchy is a good one that we should not be afraid of. It means the rule of fathers, and that's exactly what we ought to expect. Uh, Fathers do rule. Uh, Fathers are to have command of their households. Uh, If a man is going to be an an elder in the church, an officer in the church, he's got to manage or rule his own household well. Now, because of the, the baggage of the term patriarchy, a lot of times I'll just talk about headship. I mean, that's the Bible's word. So I'll yeah. just talk about headship and a man is is the head of his household or or that kind of thing. But no, I I think the term patriarchy is an important term and one that we ought to certainly reserve a place for.
0: Yeah, I think that those are great thoughts. I I want to ask you now. Again, we were talking about Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, on Facebook, and you and I had some. I asked you some questions, and I I really enjoyed the, the answer. I want to ask you uh, now just to break down some of the things you said in there because it was. It was dense, Rich. It was like dense material. And I was like, wow, I'm eating this up. So, first of all, uh, you mentioned a a term I think some of us have talked about. Maybe a lot of people don't understand, but you mentioned that churches and the culture tend to be gynocentric. And you said that they're often feminized beta male factories. So, (laughs) there's a few terms in there that I just love. But if you want to break down like the gynocentric, what does that mean culturally? Um, and then maybe just the beta male. What, what's going on with these two terms?
1: Now, Eric, you, you know that we cannot be held accountable, accountable for things we like write on exactly social right. media, right? No, it's the opposite. <laughs> if you write
0: it on social media, it's got to be true, Rich. It's got to be true.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, so I, I do think that, uh, yeah, the beta male factor. I don't think I coined that. I think I picked that up from somebody else. I couldn't tell you where. Uh, yeah, I, so I think that's just this idea that, that our churches produce. Uh, men who are often lacking in real masculinity. Yeah. And so they don't have the the courage or the competency to really lead their households. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, for, for, for over a generation now, you know, you think about the typical sitcom yeah. dad. Okay. You think about the typical sitcom dad, who's just, I mean, he's a buffoon. He's an idiot. He's clueless. Uh, You know, his his wife is kind of the one who holds the family together and he just sits there and reads the paper while the family falls apart around him. He has nothing useful to say or contribute. It's kind of like we have made that stereotype true. Okay, I don't know which actually came first, you know, the stereotype or the reality. But now that's sort of the reality we live in, where that is what a lot of men have become. I don't think it's what men always were. You know, I look at my dad or grandfathers. I mean, that's not what they were. They they, they were nothing like that. But I think that uh, a lot of men today, that's that's kind of what they're like. They have become the embodiment of that sitcom dad who doesn't have a clue. Uh, And, and I think sometimes sort of almost pride themselves in that. I mean, they just, you know, they don't, uh, they just, you know, they kind of got their heads in the sand. So uh, I I think there's, there's that issue. Um, And I think that's one that we in the church, obviously, you know, have to address. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, what I've talked about is building a better patriarch. You know, we want to build Boazes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what we're aiming at is men who know how to how to run a household the way Boaz ran his household, that kind of thing. Um, so that, that's what we're aiming at. Um, I think the flip side of that, you know, so men, I think, have lost sight of what they're doing. And we have you know, our churches have become beta male factories. The flip side of that is, you know, we, so well, let, let me say one more thing about that for saying something about the women. It's interesting to me that Paul, I'm sorry, Peter in First Peter three calls the woman the weaker yeah. vessel. And we can talk about what that means, you know, for her to be the weaker vessel. I mean, certainly it has something to do, I think, with her physicality, you know, women are, 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 uh, are, are physically uh, weaker than men. That's obviously true as a generalization. Uh, I think it also has to do with her calling, which is often going to involve childbirth, which makes her particularly vulnerable in a particular way. And it may even have something to do with her constitution or her emotionality, that, that women have a kind of um, weakness in that sense as well. But if she is the weaker vessel, what is the man to be? He's to be the stronger vessel. The problem with so many marriages today is they have two weaker vessels there's not a stronger vessel. Uh, there's no, there's no, there's no masculine grounding in the relationship. And so it just, you know, um, so I, I think that that's a real problem, but the flip side of this, you know, for every problem on the male side, there's a, there's a problem on the female side. And again, I think that that this is where feminism has really made inroads. And so now you have women who, you know, many times in the church are very much putting career ahead of household, career ahead of children. And I mean, I realize there, you know, the, the fallen world is a messy place. And so not every situation is going to be, you know, what it should be. And 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 oftentimes you're just making the, the most of a difficult situation. I, I get all that. But just in general, uh, I think we've seen a real failure on the part of the church, uh, pastors in the church, and particularly older women is who Paul says should be teaching this in Titus chapter two, to be teaching women how to um, play their role in the household. And uh, it's interesting how, you know, feminism has attacked men for their masculinity, but at the same time, it's attacked women for their femininity. And 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 it it is especially, you know, for lack of a better term, it is especially the stay-at-home mom that has been the target of feminism almost from the very beginning. You know, Simone de Beauvoir, who said that women must not be given the choice to stay home with their children because if they are given that choice, too many women will make that choice. And then Betty Friedan, I mean, she, you know, she compared the the suburban home to a comfortable concentration camp, you know, in, basically invoking the Nazis <laughs> right. like, you know, if your husband keeps you at home, he's, he's a Hitler. Just recently, I saw this woman. I I think her name is like Philia Povic or something like that. Who said that women who stay at home are setting a bad example for their kids because they lack ambition and they're not making a contribution. As if raising the next generation was not a contribution, you know. As if contributing to corporate America was more important than contributing to, you know, shaping uh, image bearers uh, who are going to live for eternity. You know, uh, and and you know G.K. Chesterton saw all of this coming. Uh, his collection of essays, uh, Brave New Family, is just, I mean, its its it's got a few rough spots here and there, but and I know some people like to knock Chesterton in different ways, but there's a lot of great insight in that book, a lot of great insight, and a lot of the things we're experiencing now he saw coming. He saw coming coming 100 years ago, Uh, you know, so uh, in that sense, I think it's really, really helpful. So there's an attack on masculinity, and that I think is out there in the open. And I think you're seeing that in the church and the effects of that in the church. But there's also this, you know, with it, this attack on femininity, and that's also having its consequences.
0: Yeah, I, I think really good points, Rich. And one of the things that I've seen happen culturally sort of as a response to this, you have, you know, Michael Foster and others have said a culture of fatherless bastards. It's, it's redundant intentionally, but um, one of the things that's happened is the rise of the red pill, the rise of Jordan Peterson. I think a lot of guys are, are looking to these men because, A, they didn't have fathers. They don't have Solomonic wisdom, you know, wisdom literature for living life, skill for living well. So they kind of turn to whatever they find, but it's interesting because while you have, you know, certain issues with Jordan Peterson, I think that are valid, I, I would definitely point to many of them. It's also interesting because Jordan, the one thing he'll do is he'll point to the realities that you spoke about, the realities of Genesis 1 through 3. He'll point to them and he'll say, men and women are different. And it's amazing in our culture how just basic, simple statements of reality will both trigger people and then other people will be like, thank you. You know, somebody is validating, I guess, what my eyes are telling me. But I, I want to ask you this question in the church, right? You, you have a lot of the same men in the church, I've found. Who are reading Jordan Peterson? Um, who are reading some of these Red Pill guys? As you look at that pastorally, it's there's got to be something right where you look at that and you go, "We we we miss something in the church," and really we have to go after these men's hearts, right? We have to be able to paint a a culture where it, patriarchy is not just a theology subject they read about, but they can come and they can worship, and we worship together, and we go home and we do hospitality and we experience the gender roles in a context that says, yes, I want that. So again, I'm curious, how have you looked at that subject pastorally and thought, you know, like, what do you do with that? This information that you have these fatherless bastards. Yeah. I
1: don't know where Jordan Peterson is spiritually. I mean, it seems like, you know, if he's not in the kingdom. He's not far yeah. from it. Uh, but uh, what, one of the things that I've always appreciated about him is he is Uh, highly empathetic towards the plight of men in our society. Um, Empathy can be a sin or it can be a virtue depending on where it's directed. Uh, There's been big debates recently over empathy. I think if you don't have any empathy at all, you're a psychopath. (laughs) And if all you have is empathy, well, then, I mean, you can't lead. You can't, you know, you can't, uh, you can't make any judgments. You can't make any decisions. It becomes paralyzing. I mean, it's that, That kind of overriding empathy that keeps uh, pastors from addressing sin in their congregation, it keeps parents from disciplining kids. Uh, you know, creates a lot of problems. So, so I mean, empathy can go either way. Just like any other, you know, anything else. I mean, love's that way too. You know, whether or not love is a vice or virtue depends on what you love. So it is with empathy. It depends on what you're empathizing with. But I really appreciate that Peterson has empathized with the plight of young men in our world today. And I think a lot of older men don't really understand just how hard it is to be a young man today, you know, with uh, just, I mean, just what you face in terms of, um, you know, trying to find a wife. Uh, dealing with the temptations of internet pornography, dealing with all the things going on in the culture, it's very difficult for young men today. Right. Uh, and I think that we do need to be empathetic with what they're up against and we need to be giving them the tools to succeed. And that's why somebody like Peterson becomes a kind of father figure to a generation of fatherless men, because they're like, here is somebody who's trying to give me the tools I need to succeed. Who's talking about competency and character as the necessary ingredients to building a better life. Right. You know, and and, and they can, I think you got a lot of people out there who can see that the way our culture is doing things, you know, the wreckage of the sexual revolution, it's just not working you know you you can go against the way god made the world you can go against nature but only for so long because nature fights back and and i think you know stds are an example of that family breakdown is 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 an example of that General misery and unhappiness that, that so many people experience is, is, uh, you know, is a sign of that. And I think Peterson has tapped into that, and that's why he's, he's a really important figure. But obviously, at this point, I, I wouldn't, I don't really point people to Jordan Peterson that much because I don't think he can give them a full orbed answer because it's not really rooted in the gospel. Maybe he'll get there, but he's not there yet. So I see Peterson as someone who's got a lot of uh, what you might call common grace observations. About reality, I think he's in touch with reality in certain key ways. I mean, that's in essence—that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is being in touch with reality. Yeah. Wisdom is in tune with the way the world is, uh, and and that's why wisdom gives you skills to live in this world. Because you're, you know, I, I like to say, you know, there's this thing called reality. You ought to check in with it once <laughs> in a while. I mean, you know, yeah, because uh, our culture is going to detach you from yeah. reality. Our culture is trying to override reality with its ideologies. Right. You know, our, our, our culture really thinks that our technology and our ideologies can reprogram and conquer nature and, and basically remake the world in our own image, take the world that God made and, and refashion it according to our own whims. And you cannot do right. that. Creation is the way God made it. You know, God made the world with certain patterns and, and 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 natures in it, and wisdom recognizes that. That's what wisdom is. It's pattern recognition and nature recognition. Wisdom means understanding the patterns and natures God built into the world and into his providence. Peterson gets some of that. And, and in that sense, I think he's a really helpful voice, but he's only going to get you part way there. Um, I love the work that guys like Mike Foster and Non-Tenant are doing. Uh, there's a guy named Craig James, who I think has done good work yeah. in this area too, yeah. who's, a, who's a believer. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, some, some of the stuff I, I, I was reading this last week from you, really, really impressed with it. So I think there's a lot of guys out there who are giving you know, the true version of what needs to be said. Uh, the true red pill, you know, which starts with the fear of God. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it, it, all wisdom starts with the fear of God. So start with that and then go from there.
0: Yeah, I think that's really huge. Uh, one of the things, Rich, you've talked about, I've seen you mention is uh, Mark Horn's book, Solomon Says. Um, maybe I, I want to ask you a follow up question after this about maybe some other resources you might recommend. But why would this book be helpful for men? Well, it's so good
1: because it unlocks the book of Proverbs in a really helpful way for men. I mean, I think Mark Horn uh has, has done a lot of great work on the scriptures over the years. Uh, you know, back I guess probably in like the late nineties or so, he and I were sort of partners in crime. He he I, I've never really had much of my own social media presence, but he was the first to publish some of my writing and that kind of thing. And I think Mark's done a lot of great work uh, on the scriptures through the years, but his book is really, really good. And I'll tell you what I think is the fundamental insight and, and his book unpacks this in a really helpful way in Genesis chapter one, you know, well, let me, let me go to Genesis chapter two, just keep this briefer Genesis chapter two, God gives Adam a job to tend and guard the garden. And he also then gives him a wife, Okay, who of course he's to tend and guard her too. She's, she's kind of the garden come to life, as it were, um, a, a living embodiment of the garden, which Song of Solomon makes you know, quite a bit to do about that. But uh, so, so th- those are the two areas of man's life, his work and his wife, his mission and his marriage. Okay. Well, those are the two fundamental things that are addressed throughout the book of Proverbs. Yeah. And that's what Mark shows is that if you want to take dominion, so, so that original mandate to take dominion, to exercise dominion over the earth, to subdue the earth, to, uh, to, to cultivate the earth and rule over it, and then to be fruitful and to multiply, you know, those, those are the two areas of a man's life. Okay. Proverbs unpacks what it means to fulfill that original creation mandate in a fallen world. How do you take dominion? How do you be fruitful and multiply? Proverbs shows us what that looks like. How does a man carry out his mission? How does he live in his marriage? How does a man carry out his work? How does he gain a wife? That's what Proverbs is all about. And that's why I think Proverbs is the best possible handbook for a young man, because it addresses those fundamental areas of life. And Mark has done a really superb job of bringing out what that means. So, yes, by all means, I would say to any young man, get that book and read it. Uh, It'll certainly help you. It is what Jordan Peterson could have Could have written if he was a Christian, I guess you could say. Yeah. But it's a lot simpler, too. It doesn't doesn't use all the philosophical and, 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 um, yeah, the Jungian psychology. Yeah. Yeah, Peterson, I can't even tell what Peterson's talking about half the time (laughs) because there's so much verbiage there. So, uh, Horn doesn't, doesn't give you any of that. He just cuts, you know, straight to the heart of the matter.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Rich. So, other, maybe other resources you might recommend books, um, you know, talks, other stuff. Four men yeah uh well I'm, of course besides your podcast oh yeah besides uh, that yeah
1: i um, i'll tell you one one book that i read back when i was in college that uh that that my the, the pastor i had in college introduced me to uh werner newer's book man and woman in christian perspective uh i have to admit i mean so this was you know i've this was like early 90s. Uh, my, my college pastor was uh, Peter Reese Doyle, okay. uh, who did some writing of his own. But, but he really understood the sexual issues really, really well. In fact, he had left the Episcopal Church. Uh, because of its compromise in these areas and had gone on to be a PCA pastor. And, but he he really taught us Christian men. I mean, I grew up in a great Christian household with, you know, faithful, loving mom and dad, a dad who was clearly head of the household, you know, a, a, a mom who played her role as a submissive wife. So I ha- I got, to, you know, a front row seat to all that growing up. But it was really Dr. Doyle that uh, unlocked these things for me biblically you know, when I had seen experientially, he really gave me that biblical foundation with his teaching. But this was a book he recommended, Man and Woman and Christian Perspective uh, by Werner Neuer. And I was kind of skeptical because it was a German theologian. And I, I was, I remember thinking, you know, what, what good could come out of, you know, Germany, you know, <laughs> out of German theology right. uh, about men and women. But it's actually a really superb book that does a very good job of showing how scripture and nature, you know, what we know from special revolution, re- revelation, what we can glean from from natural revelation, how they dovetail together. Uh, to reinforce this understanding of masculinity and femininity that, that is you know, embodied in all these different ways in Scripture. That's a book I'd, I'd really recommend. I mentioned Chesterton's book, uh, Brave New Family. That's really good. You know, th- that would be something that I think would be well worth reading. He's sort of dismantling feminism right at the start, you know, in the 1920s. He's basically showing the, 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 the follies of, uh, of, of this feminist order and what it's doing to the household. And, and the book does a great job of of praising motherhood and and showing the glory and value of motherhood. Uh, So that's a book I would strongly recommend. Um, You know, those would be good starters.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, It's interesting, Rich, too, because uh, we've talked a lot about the Manosphere, the Red Pill stuff, Jordan Peterson. Um, At least from my perspective, there seems to be a lot of, there's a lot of movement happening there, and a lot of it can be really good. Do you see much happening for women? Because one of the things that I've seen is we had these Bible teachers that women really turned to for a long time. Beth Moore was one of them. Um, But I I don't know if it's just because I'm not seeing it, but who are the women that you would kind of point young ladies to and say, you want to emulate this, maybe read some of their stuff? Is it out there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know that I have a really good answer for you. Uh, which is, which is frustrating because I ought to have a good answer for you. There ought to be a good answer. We ought we, you know, you shouldn't even have to ask the question. We should all know uh, who these women are that we can point uh, younger women to, to read. Uh, Yeah. I I don't know for sure. Um, I would say that the counterpart to Jordan Peterson, like if you're kind of looking for a, you know, semi red pillish female teacher who will say things that women need to hear, who's not a Christian, Uh, From what I can glean, but who is not far, uh, you know, from from you know from being a Christian, it'd be Suzanne Venker. Okay, you know, she styles herself as the feminist fixer, and she's been writing for several years. She's got a bunch of books out, a bunch of podcasts, all that kind of thing. And I'll I'll dip into her work occasionally, and she'll have some interesting guests on uh, on her podcast. She's done a pretty good job, again, from a secular perspective, of showing why feminism is a dead end for women and it's it's not going to lead them to the happiness they desire. Uh, so that's, you know, that that is somebody who I think could be read with some discernment. I mean, just like I wouldn't recommend Jordan Peterson uh, without qualification. I wouldn't recommend Suzanne. Suzanne Peter, Suzanne Venker is not going to give you a, um, a fully biblical sex ethic or anything like that. But she's she has tapped into certain realities about male and female nature. Right. Uh, Like that's even kind of how she leads into her podcast. She'll say we're men and women, you know, men and women are equal, but different. And that's kind of her tagline. So, you know, she, she's got that, that, that basic sense of things. And I think it's really helpful. Um, So, you know, that she would be somebody, I mean, I know a lot of women who have benefited from Lori Alexander's work the transformed wife. Now, I mean, she may be a little bit more extreme. She may be, you know, she may be the female version of kind of that hyper patriarchy I talked about. I've not read a lot of her stuff myself. Um, But the little bit I've seen, I mean, there seems to be some good things there. At the very least, she's not ashamed of what the Bible teaches. And she's going to emphasize those more... um, domestic and familial roles for the woman over against career she may just go too far with it i mean again i'm not i'm not all that familiar with her work but she might be somebody Uh, nancy wilson you know would be somebody who i think would be worth a read as would doug wilson i didn't mention him but i think a lot of his books in the family have some some really good things to to say so uh those would be those are books that come to mind if i have a better i wish i had a better answer for you um and if you come up with a better answer let me know because i'd be (laughs) interested myself
0: yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's definitely been, uh, it's been difficult to uh, pinpoint a lot of that stuff on the women's side. So hopefully uh, people get inspired and w- we start to see more of that. W- one of the last things I want to ask you, Rich, is uh, we talk to a lot of young men, middle-aged men. A lot of people in that camp on this show get a lot of feedback. There's a lot of disillusionment about the effeminacy in the church. But if you had to look at those guys and say, like, elevator pitch why should young men and why should men who care about masculinity not abandon local worship why should they not abandon submitting to local elders what would you tell that guy
1: yeah i mean don't give up on the church i would say that the true to be a true man You have to be a churchman. To be a true man, you have to be a churchman. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, there's obviously, you know, more to manhood than going to worship and and all that. But I would say the center of masculinity, the grounding of your masculinity is going to be what happens in... In, you know, in your church, the weekly assembly, the gathering of the saints, it ought to flow out of that. And if you're in a good, healthy church, that church is going to be cultivating masculinity. It's going to be cultivating male leadership. Uh, it's going to be cultivating a band of brothers. You know, that gang of men that you need. Uh, that fellowship. That that you know, those fraternal relations you need. The brotherhood that you need uh, in order to grow as a man. Because you certainly cannot do it on your own apart from that. Uh so I would say that the church is absolutely essential and the same is true for women too. I mean when, you yeah. know Titus 2 again I mean who's going to teach the younger women it's got to be the older women in the church. And and Paul in Titus two gives the curriculum of what the older women are to teach. He says, you know, I mean, it couldn't be any plainer. This, these are the things you are to be teaching. Right. Uh, and just spells it out, you know, in terms of, you know, being into your husband, your husband and your kids and, and and managing the home and those kinds of things. So uh, I, I would say that the church ought to be the place where masculinity and femininity come to their fullest expression. I realize the church is often not that place, yeah. but that's what the church ought to be. And that's what we ought to be striving to be in our churches. Um, but again, I, to answer your question, I would go back to what I said at the beginning. Um, true, uh, you, you can't be a true man without being a churchman.
0: Yeah, I think that's really huge. Um, Rich, kind of last thing here for pastors, we have a lot of pastors who listen to the show, a lot of guys who are new to or discovering the importance of gendered piety and sexuality. A lot of them are are wondering things like, well, how do how do I start addressing this in the church? Uh, particularly if i know there's going to be conflict and tension so just pastoral wisdom for going about that that process what would you what would you say i think it's the
1: same as with any kind of reformation in the church make haste slowly yeah it never you know if you if you have identified things about your own church or about your denomination that you believe need fixing I mean, obviously, you always have the choice of, of going to a different church if, if there's a church that you think is being more faithful. And there are obviously good and bad ways to leave a church, there are peaceful and disruptive ways to do that, uh, submissive or rebellious ways to do that. But if you're, let's just say that you're going to be in your church uh, and, and you would like to see some things reformed or at least tweaked in various ways, I would say make haste slowly. Realize that it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, that you're talking about a lot of conversations, a lot of prayer, a lot of discussion over an open Bible. Uh, and, and you know, we all have different roles to play. I mean, some, you know, some people are not going to be in a position to exert any kind of influence in their local church. You know, other people are, you know, uh, you have some men who are pastors and obviously have a great deal of influence or their elders and have a great deal of influence in their local church. So, yeah, depending on your role, depending on your giftedness, depending on your age and station in life, uh, you may be in a position to exert some influence. You may not, and you'll have to make decisions accordingly. But if you're in a position to, to have some influence, and you see some things in your church that you would like to see changed, uh, and you're and you're gonna you know you're gonna stay put, you're committed to that body, that fellowship. Uh, I would say do so respectfully. Uh, do so patiently, but don't sit on your hands forever. I mean, you know, if you if if you see things that, that need to be addressed, uh, I, I think any any church session worth its salt is going to want to listen to what its people have to say and receive that input when it comes from the scriptures. Uh, every church out there is a communion of saints, yes, but also a communion of sinners, and it's going to fall short in all kinds of ways. All of our churches are in need of reformation. Uh, none of our churches are what they should be. So, yes, by all means, uh, you know, do do what you can based on your you know, your situation and your your broader vocation to bring that kind of reformation to the church.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really huge. Make haste slowly. Uh, final, final question, Rich, for you. Daughters. I know you have daughters. Um, it, it's challenging times for men and for women. I, it's hard to boil it down to one or two things. Right. But if, if you could say general general things that you would say to fathers or mothers with daughters um, in the midst of everything that's going on, what are the things that you've focused on throughout the years that you've seen bear especially good fruit as you've been raising your daughters?
1: Well, you know, we started off talking about gendered piety, and I would say that... uh... Yeah, you know, we have to have gendered parenting too. In fact, we really shouldn't even talk about parenting. We should talk about mothering and fathering. I mean, yeah. if you want to talk yeah. about parenting, it's kind of some of that fine. But but let's recognize that mothering and fathering are two different things, and mothers and fathers have different roles to play in the lives of their children. And a mother's relationship with her son is going to be different than her re- relationship with her daughter, and it's going to be the same for the father if he's got sons and daughters. His relationship with them will look different. So start with that, and 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 recognize that you know everything we said about gendered piety would apply here so in one sense yes we have the same goals for our sons and our daughters I want to raise you know a son who uh, will glorify God and enjoy him forever and I want to raise daughters who will glorify God and enjoy him forever they have the same cheap end in that way but the masculine way of doing that and the feminine way of doing that it's going to look different and so the question is what does that look like uh, I think men are to be trained in uh, dominion. Men were made for dominion. If, if you look at where the curse falls on Adam in Genesis 3, it hits him in the realm of work because that's the center of his life. So yes, he's still going to continue to work, but now thorns and thistles will get in the way. Yes, he will continue to provide for his family, but it will only be by the sweat of his brow. So work's going to look different now in a fallen world, but that's the center of his identity. He's called to be a protector and provider, and now that just got a lot harder. Okay, but that's what he's to do. Men are, are to be trained, you know. So if you think about sons, you're training your son for dominion. They ought to be trained for dominance, to be leaders, to be initiators, to be workers. They ought to be, you know. You're certainly training them in uh, in character, but you want to train them in competency as well. Give them as many skills as you can. And I believe that you know even the best men. I mean, there's, in one sense, no such thing as a renaissance man who's really good at everything. I mean, right. every man is, at best, a situational alpha. You ought to accumulate as many skills as you can, but you ought to recognize, too, that nobody's good at everything. We're going to need each other. Uh, we never get past that. But, but, but that's, that's got to be something that you're doing with your son is training him for wide-ranging uh, dominion. Uh, competency in a lot of different area, broad range of skills. So he can do calculus and change his oil. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what you want to look for. Uh, for women, it's different. You're tra- so think about then where the curse hits Uh, The woman in Genesis chapter three, it hits her in the realm of childbearing, because that's the center of her vocation. Typically for women, that's going to be the center of her life is bearing and nurturing children. And just as the man has other things in his life besides his work, she will have other things in her life besides her children. But that's central. It's central to who she is as a woman. Um, when Adam renames her, it's the second time he names her uh, after the fall in Genesis three. He names her mother of the living. I mean, what is a woman? Yeah. Uh, a, a, what what is a female? It's somebody with the potential, with either potential or actual motherhood. I mean, that that's you know that's right at the heart of femininity. So we need to be training women to be nurturers. We need to be training uh, daughters to be maternal. I mean, even those daughters that may not grow up to have, you know, to be wives and mothers and have children of their own, they need to be maternal. They need to be nurturing because that's the real expression of their femininity. And this is really where their glory is found. You know, again, most of our daughters will be married, God willing, and so they will be wives and mothers. Uh, They will be the glory of a man. And so we need to be training them in that. We need to be training them in what true beauty is. The culture is going to tell you that true beauty is found in flaunting your sexuality. It's, you know, that that's empowering for women. And we need to say, no, Uh, you do want to cultivate outward beauty for sure. We're not Gnostics who are indifferent to that outward beauty. but, but, But a godly woman is going to want her outward beauty to be a reflection and expression of her much greater and even more valuable inner beauty. Of character, and and that's the kind of thing that I think Peter talks about in First Peter three. So right. it's not one or the other. You know, I, I've I've seen Christian circles where female beauty outwardly expressed was denigrated, right? And and you can imagine that that puts a lot of strain and tension on marriages and whatnot when you know when. <laughs> when women give up caring about their physical beauty. But the reality is inner beauty is more important and will always be more important. And, and, and it's, it's lasting. That outer beauty is going to fade. It doesn't matter how much uh, a woman invests in her physical appearance. She's not going to be able to keep up. Uh, That's just the way God made the world. And, and, you know, godly husbands are bonded to their wives in a way that transcends, you know, whether or not she is still as attractive as she once was. I mean, in his eyes, she will be. Uh, because of the bond between them. But uh, that's what we have to be training our daughters for, is uh, to recognize that they have a maternal nature. They're called to be nurturers. They're called to be life givers. Uh, they're, they're called to, uh, in most cases, be the glory of a man. And, and what does that mean? How can she express her glory in this kind of way? Uh, again, that, that curriculum that, that Paul gives for older women to teach younger women in Titus chapter two, I think that's right at the heart of it. You know, and, and what kind of things does he say? Uh, he says, admonish the, the, the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's what we ought to be teaching our daughters.
0: Yeah, that's that's huge. I think it's uh, a really great take, both for the men. I mean, you gave a great take for the men and for the women. But I think having those categories, and obviously the church is going to have to really teach on these things, not one time, um, as you mentioned. But this has to be part of the culture of the church um, that that gendered piety is all throughout all throughout what you're teaching and what you're doing. Yeah, we
1: want to cultivate churches where masculinity, you know, where men are not ashamed of masculinity, where masculinity is expected. And then the same complement that. And, and so, and if you lose one, you're going to lose the other. Uh, and if you gain one, you'll start to gain the other. So I, yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's got to be in the culture of our churches for sure.
0: That's huge. Well, Rich, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the show. What is the best place where people can check out uh, either your writings, preaching?
1: Well, uh, yeah, so I would send people, I don't, I really am not huge into social media, but I would send people to our church website and if you, and and that's uh trinity-prez.net. And uh, if you go to our church website, of course, there's all kinds of sermons there and that kind of thing. And I think we've actually got the uh, the sermons I preached on various family and sexual topics, gendered topics, uh, separated out so you can easily find those. Perfect. Uh, so there, there's, a, there's a lot of sermons there. I think every single sermon I have preached in the you know, what, 16 or so years that I've been here is there. But then also, if you really want to check out my writings, uh, I've got a blog where I write things occasionally. Uh, You can go to what's called the Pastor's Corner, which is kind of a separate website off of that main church website. And uh, on that, you will find probably what your listeners might be most interested in is if you go to the uh, media section of that, there is a conference page. And uh, especially in the last few years, I guess there's probably some that are further back, but especially in the last few years as there's been a lot of interest about this thing. I've done a a lot of teaching on these particular issues at different conferences, and all of that audio can be found there. So that's probably the best place if somebody wanted to uh, check out other things I've said about these things. That's probably the best place to go.
0: And, Rich, does that include – I know you just did a conference what last fall – um, in Alabama, that stuff should be on there as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any conference I've done, uh, yeah, that's right. I did, um, back in January, I did the stronghold conference. Okay. Uh, in Huntsville I mean, that was really yeah. I mean, especially targeted at men. And I've, I've got a couple talks I gave that weekend in Huntsville that are there. Those are probably at the top of that conference page. Cause that's the most recent thing I've done. And then there's some other things there too, that you can, you can find if somebody's interested.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate it. We'll have everybody uh, check those out. I'll provide links for them as well in the show notes. And if anybody gets a chance, I would also encourage you, check Brian Motes out on Twitter. You need to see the men of the church sing because singing men, that's what we need. That's right. Absolutely. Well, Rich, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you, Eric.
0: Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. And again, a special thanks to Pastor Rich Lusk out of Birmingham, Alabama. Rich and his church are doing some phenomenal things, and we'll include some links to those resources in the show notes. And I would encourage you to check those out. Definitely have been helpful to me, especially in understanding the total scriptural view of biblical sexuality. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, would encourage you to support this work there. We are changing some things up now. You can go to ericcon.com, and instead of Patreon, you can also sign up for a membership through the website. We're going to have some tiers for access to lots more exclusive content. You can get the podcast there as well. Early listening, all that stuff will now be featured through the website, so I'd encourage you to check that out. Of course, all the live shows, Will still be available wherever you get your podcast, Apple, iTunes, all that stuff, uh, Spotify uh, will still be on all those outlets. Be sure to check out the eStore, which is on the newericcon.com site, and sign up for our newsletter so you get updates about new products and new content that is coming down the pipeline your way. Again, if you benefited from this content, we definitely appreciate the support. That goes a long way to continuing to fund this work and also to fund the writing and podcast that I am doing through this show. Until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.